from the moment Jesus stepped into Jerusalem to his arduous journey to be crucified and into his glorious resurrection. Come and listen in as Dr. Andy Brown shares the truly awesome significance of the holiest of weeks. This is Hearing is Believing. Would you take your Bible and join me in the book of Mark? Tonight, we're going into chapter 12. As we continue this journey through the Passion Week, we continue looking at the path of our Lord leading up to the cross. And in chapter 12 is where we begin to see the hostilities really beginning to come to the forefront in the life of our Lord, especially during this week of Passion Week. But I want to let you think about something with me, if you wouldn't mind, for just a moment. Think about our identity, if you wouldn't mind, in Christ. Think about what God and who God has called us to be. As Christians, as those who are people who know God, we have this sense in the world where we know that we're not double-minded, but we have this longing, this expectation to be with God. Because we realize eternity. Knowing God means that we realize eternity. We realize that we're going to spend an eternity in one of two places. For those of us who know God, we know that there is a glorious future, an anticipation of a better day, of a better day that's coming, and we long for that. There's always been this question in our minds as those who are the people of God. We've always wondered, how in the world then are we to react in this world? There's always been this tension with the people of God as we seek to honor our Lord, but yet realize that He has left us in this world to relate to this world, to show them a higher way, a better way. And I think that it's important for us as believers, those of us who know God, who realize eternity, it's important for us to have this tension in us, to always want to know how to be in the world and not of the world. It's good to have that tension. The reason I tell you tonight that it's good to have that tension is because we know who God is. And we know this world shows a picture of hostility. It shows a picture of anger. It shows a picture of depression, of sickness, of all types of things. That, and it shows a lot of good as well. But we know that even the good is not as good as it's going to be. Amen. So we always live with this hostility. And so the question before us tonight is, how do we live in a world that's full of hostility and still honor our Lord? Well, thankfully, we have a wonderful image tonight, a wonderful example, a wonderful Savior who not only showed us, showed us an example, but paved the way for us by going to the cross, by taking away sin, by raising from the dead, by pouring out His Spirit, who not only gave us an example, though we're grateful for His example, He, through His death, through the atonement that He made for us, not only just gave us an example, He made it a possibility for us to live in such a way to please God. And I hope that you understand that tonight. That's vital. Not only did Jesus have an example for us to follow, He made a way for us through his self-giving of himself. And so tonight we enter the narrative in Mark 
chapter 12, after we've seen Jesus enter into Jerusalem triumphantly, these days are ticking down now. We are marking, as those of us who are familiar with the biblical narrative, we understand that Friday is coming. And thank God that Friday did come because the king would be on a cross. And then Saturday would come where the king would be in a tomb. But praise God, Sunday is coming as well. And so as we enter the narrative on this Tuesday, we look at those events as what, of what would have happened on Tuesday. And we find Jesus being aggressively attacked by a group. And so let's join the narrative beginning in chapter 12 and verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We as believers are between two worlds. We understand that this world is passing away. And as this world passes away, there is a new day, a better day that is coming. But what do we do until then? How do we live? How do we act? Do we react or do we act in this world that's full of hostilities? And I'm so glad tonight that our Master shows us how to react how to act, how to live in a world full of hostilities because he was marked with suffering. And the suffering began for him at the moment of his conception. At the moment that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, at that moment, the enemy of the world sought out to destroy him. So we have an example. We have an understanding of how we are to live between two worlds. And this is the first thing that I want us to learn from the Bible tonight. And this is the confidence that we have. In a world full of hostilities, we know that God is in total control. Jesus here, he's a, being attacked on all fronts. And look at the way that it's, it's written here. It says that they, they are probably the ones that have been questioning his authority the entire time. These are those religious rulers who have always been the ones who have been on the back of John, who now they're on the back of Jesus, and they continue to seek ways in order to destroy him and he faces attacks on all fronts and here tonight we have an attack from the authorities the pharisees and some of the herodians and their play is right on the table their cards are all set because we know exactly because of the narrator mark he's telling us exactly what they're doing they are out to trap him to entrap him in his talk and so we have these groups here These unlikely companions of Pharisees and Herodians. One represents the religious group. The other represents the political group. For those of you who ever had any friends and tried to keep them, you understand that there's two realms that you're really never supposed to mix. Perhaps you go to your 
family's Christmas or you'll go over to your uh, family's Easter celebration and you know if you want to keep the peace there's really two things that you're not supposed to mix together and that's politics and religion. Well that's exactly what happened here. Politics and religion got together to attack Jesus. The Pharisees they didn't appreciate Jesus because he was challenging the status quo. He was challenging the religious system that had been enacted or in place built after the Jews came back under Cyrus. Now, just a little bit of history for you. Remember, there was the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priest system, and then there was this uh, period in Israel where the priests sort of went away and astray and And then you have this idea and understanding of the attack from the outsiders that went and they took the Jews captive. The Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. And then all of a sudden you have this king by the name of Cyrus who was prophesied who was going to let the Jews be allowed to come back. And so they did and they built this second temple. Zerubbabel built this second temple. And then Herod came in and expanded upon that temple to make it one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. But then all of a sudden during this period period when they were sort of still under the captivity they developed these systems all through their religious all undergirding their religious system all of a sudden you had this group called the Pharisees then you had another group called the Sadducees then you had this other group called the scribes and then you had this group that was sort of a zealous group called the Essenes. And so you have all of these religious systems mixing together, and none of them really appreciated Jesus. Well, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees, they added a couple of hundred laws to the law that was already. They were very zealous for the law. And then you had the Essenes who did their thing, and so that none of them were really appreciating Jesus, because what Jesus was doing is he was saying, listen, you've missed the entire point. The entire point of worship is not these external ritual the point of worship is your heart and Jesus came to get the people's heart he came to ransom our souls away and so this is exactly what the Pharisees are attacking Jesus for but they join groups with the Herodians and so we say well who in the world were the Herodians well the Herodians they didn't appreciate Jesus because he was challenging the Roman authority. So if you just look at your Bible there and you see the word Herodian, you should hear uh, a name in that name, Herod. Do you hear it? Herodian. They were the ones who uh, Herod was appointed by Rome and Herod had much to benefit from the Roman occupation, especially the political climate. So these two groups coming at Jesus, and as our minds are immersed in the text, as we understand the culture, as we understand what's going on, as soon as we come to chapter 12 and verse 13, and we read that they, these religious leaders, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, automatically we're thinking and we're going, what? That's like oil and water. These two just don't mix, but they did mix. When faced with an opponent that is unbeatable, all the forces of darkness join hand in hand. In other words, the old saying, I guess, that they were ascribing to, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But you and I are to learn from this. All through this section when Jesus is being attacked, he will eventually be crucified. We remember his words to his followers when he said, If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. 
We remember the words of our Lord. This is what you signed up for, believer, if indeed you are a believer, if indeed you have signed up to trust Jesus. I hope that you read the bottom line. I hope you read the small print. This is not just the small print. This is the one that was plastered upon a cross so that all the world could see the suffering for which we ascribe, the glory of the resurrection for which we ascribe. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. And the disciples of proof, all of them were tortured. All of them, except one, was murdered because of Jesus. So when he's saying these things, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. We understand that even though the world is full of hostilities, God is in control. And here he displays excellent control. It's almost as if he's untouchable. It's almost as if they cannot trap him. And I hope that you see that. They set out to trap him and he just wiggles free. That's exactly what he does. But think about where we stand in our particular place in the West, in America. We are at a particular crossroads in our country. Where we are seeing secularization that is aggressively attempting to eradicate the particular ideals that this country was founded upon. Radical secularization, attempting to eradicate the Christian worldview, attempting to eradicate and suppress the Judeo-Christian worldview that has founded this country. And listen to this carefully to me. Though we lament this fact, and though it's good for us to have the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention making intercessions to Congress, it's good for us to get involved in politics. It's good for us, and it's our duty to get involved and fight for those rights that we have. We will lament this fact. We fight against it with repentance and engagement with our culture. But even still, we understand that our hope doesn't come from a political agenda. Our hope comes from the God who reigns. And if we should learn anything, we should learn that the sands of time, the tides of politics, they will quickly, just as they did here with Jesus, quickly turn. One moment they'll be for Jesus, the next minute they'll be against Jesus. Whatever suits them. And here's what I mean when I'm saying all this. In our present age, in our present society, the Christian church in America has been lulled to sleep in an age where we have been able to be comfortable thinking that we are in the promised land when actually we are as Peter calls us the elect exiles pilgrims who are making our progress to that celestial city you see we're not there yet and let me say this 20 years ago we weren't there 30 years ago, we weren't there. 40 years ago, we weren't there. Nostalgia is such a wonderful thing, but as believers, we don't have nostalgia because we've never experienced heaven. We've never experienced the glory that awaits us. And so instead of having this nostalgia, we long, we hope, we believe that this day is coming. 
And so we are longing and looking for our King to take us to that place. We're looking and we're praying the way that He taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. We say, Lord, come and bring Your kingdom here. We don't ever think that we can set up God's kingdom and then He'll come. No, He's coming to bring His kingdom. And so the trouble in this world is not diminished but it is defeated. Listen carefully to me. The trouble in this world is not diminished, but it is defeated. It is not deleted, but all of the trouble has been destroyed, and its destruction came at this point when Jesus is here. It already came 33 years ago when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of God. You must understand this. All along the way, there were all these obstacles to try to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, prevent Jesus from even coming here. Do you remember even when he was born, Herod, under the direction of Lucifer, Herod tried to snuff out the Messiah by killing the Jewish babies. But was he successful? Absolutely not. So in other words, we understand that the enemy has already been defeated a one punch with the birth of Jesus, and now he will soon be defeated this two punch that will knock him flat on his face. And it will come those six hours one Friday when he was agonizing on the cross, laid in a tomb. And three days later, there was a big boom that shook the world, that is still shaking the world. As Jesus has entered the city, we looked at it Sunday, we celebrated it on Palm Sunday in chapter 11 of of Mark, we call it the triumphal entry. The reason we call it the triumphal entry is because Jesus has reached the point of no return, and surely, surely, an unlikely alliance between two diametrically opposed groups The Pharisees and the Herodians will not be able to stop the king of glory. Look at the poise that Jesus has. Even though he's assaulted teacher, they say, oh, what a great commendation, rabbi, great. That's an upper level of society here. Rabbi, we know that you are true and You don't care about anyone's opinion. I wonder if they were saying that sort of tongue-in-cheek, jabbing that at him. But they were saying, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the ways of God. And that's how they open their sentence, with all this flattery. And then they get to the point. And they say, tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And can't you just imagine with me for just a moment, probably the spokesperson of the Herodians and the Pharisees, their group, surely they, no doubt, they had their little, their little unholy huddle and they were probably thinking, how are we going to trap him? How are we going to get him? Hey, let's try this idea. Yeah, let's go with it. And all of a sudden here we have them saying, is it lawful or is it not? And can't you just see the smug look of the individual's face that must have been there? You have to understand the dynamite in this question. This question just rolls past us if we're not careful and understand the dynamite and how loaded this question is. Because just 
a few years earlier, in 27 years earlier, in A.D. 6, there was a man by the name of Judas the Galilean who refused to pay the Roman tax. Now this Judas the Galilean, he saw paying the Roman tax as an infringement upon the sovereignty of God. Here's what he thought. He thought that paying taxes to Caesar was an acknowledgement of Caesar's domination over them. So he refused. And as a result of his refusal, a revolt happened. And these Jews quickly learned the power of the iron fist of Rome. He refused. Started a revolt. Rome responded by harshly crushing the revolt. So here's the way it's all been set up. Think about it. These two groups, think about that already. These two groups that are already diametrically opposed, they have agreed on one question. Here's the reality. If Jesus responds one way, then he sets him up for open rebuke from the crowds who are already tired of the Roman rule. But if he responds the other way, then he sets himself up against the mighty Roman Empire. What will he do? What a diabolical trap. But look at the way he responds. Totally in control. Totally unscathed. Look at what he says. He says, bring me a denarius. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the ones that asked the question. He says, that's an excellent question. Why don't you show me the answer in your own pocket? Because by their admission of having a denarius in their pocket, what they're saying is they're saying, hey, we've already exchanged our Jerusalem money for Roman money so that we can pay the tax. Jesus says, I'll show you the trap. He says, show me the money. Show me the denarius. The answer was in their pocket. The fact that it, they have it shows that they have answered their own question. Look at the way the Bible's written. It says, knowing their hypocrisy. He knew that they were hypocrites, even asking them a question because they had already participated in their own response. God is in control. But it's in the inspection of the coin. Our Lord gives us a clue about His mission and our response to Him. Look at what He says. Jesus says, give me the coin. And then look at what he says. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. <laughs> it's not as if he's never seen a denarius before. I mean, give me a break. It's not as if he's never been to Jerusalem before. This is according to John. This is not his first Passover that he's been in. So what in the world is going on here? He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He wanted to take the time to teach, to show them what it is that they should have known. And I tried to find a uh, denarius. I uh, didn't have one, but if I would have brought it here today and we were to look at it, it would have an inscription on the front of it, as well as an inscription on the back of it. It had an image on the coin, the image of Tiberius Caesar, with the inscription, listen to this. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son 
of the divine Augustus. And on the back of the coin, if you were to turn the coin over, it said Pontifex Maximus, which means our high priest. The Jews understood that in their pocket was a gross image of idolatry. But then look at the way that Jesus answered the question. So you would think that Jesus would say, if this is the way that everything's are going and we understand the Old Testament, you would think that Jesus would answer the question and he would say, get rid of that money. That's, a, that's an image of idolatry. Throw it away. What are you thinking? But he doesn't say that. He teaches us how we are to live between two worlds. And the way that he teaches us, and this is the second point that I want us to learn tonight, is in a world that's full of hostilities, we have the responsibility to bear the image of Christ. Look at what he says. He takes the coin. He looks at it. And look at what he says after he inspects it. And it doesn't say what's on it. He does it just to know, just so that everyone knows that he knows what it says. He looks at it and look at what he says first. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Scripture is clear that God raises up kings and he tears down kingdoms. In other words, Scripture is absolutely clear that God is in absolute authority, that God is in absolute control. Now, what does that mean for us as believers, as Jesus? He doesn't say, throw it away, how dare you do that? No, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so what does that mean for us? Listen carefully. It means that there are obligations that we as believers have to the state. All throughout Scripture, it is clear about this, especially the New Testament. Teaching us how do we live as those who are in between worlds or those who are between two worlds. Obligations that we have as believers to the state which do not infringe upon the rights of God. And to show you that, I want you to uh, read with me 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2 in verses 12 through 17. And 1 Peter first opens and 1 Peter says that uh, you are the ones who are the elect exiles. You are the ones whom God has spread and scattered over all the earth. And so they were uh, scattered, no doubt, because of all kind of hostilities, because of all kinds of persecution. And so they have this responsibility. Can't you just imagine? Remember who Peter is. No doubt he may have been that one because he was the mouthpiece. Remember, after Jesus had been crucified, after he had risen, and before his ascension, remember what happened? The disciples came to him, and someone in the group said, Lord, is it at this time that you restore the kingdom? They were longing and looking to go, ready to go. But what does Jesus say? He says, you're not supposed to think about that. Here's what you're supposed to do. Remain in the city until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then after you receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to be my witnesses in all the world. So what does that mean for us? It means that our King has commanded us, He has given us a mandate to live in this world. And no doubt in this world, He has established kings, He has established kingdoms. And so we need to know how it is that we interact with the state, with the world. And thankfully, Peter who 
may have been the one to ask such a question because he was the most outspoken of all the group. Peter, he opens up his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1, and he says to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Benthia, listen to this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Think about it. Just the the body of the New Testament after the book of Acts, or even in the book of Acts, after the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, all the rest of them. What are they? They are teaching us how we are to live in this world. They are teaching us how we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And I love 1 Peter chapter 2 as he goes down here specifically talking about the individuals who no doubt had persecuted the church before in 1 Peter chapter 2 in verses 12 through 17. Listen to what he says. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, underscore that in your mind when they speak against you as evildoers. Not if. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What? Even those institutions that are against God? Yes. To what degree? Well, I tell you to what degree. Paul would not deny Christ. But Paul subjected himself to the penalty of not denying Christ which was to have his head removed from his shoulders. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, who was the one breathing threats against the church at this time, whether it be to the emperor, and this was probably Nero when Peter was writing, as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Listen to this. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorant of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living servants of God. And then he sums it all up for us in a nice little bow and ties it. Honor everyone, love the brethren, fear God, honor the emperor. So Jesus looks at his opponents, understanding that this God who never changes is always the same. He looks with full authority, knowing that he is the one who raised up mighty Nebuchadnezzar, who came and destroyed Jerusalem in the Babylonian captivity. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. And he says in his second response, he limits the power of the state. Listen closely. He limits the power of the state 
and puts the power of the most powerful empire of the world at that time, the Roman Empire, under the realm of his own authority. Look into what he says. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And then we see the result of the crowd. And they marveled at him. The reason they marveled at him is what I want to show you tonight. The reason that we should marvel in this text because there is a question that is not proposed in this question that we are left to answer. The answer is whose image is on you? Jesus' entire mission, his entire purpose was restoration through salvation. Restoration through salvation. The Bible says that man was made in the image of God. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he created them. Though man bears the divine image still, this image has been marred by sin. And I don't have to convince you of that. We see the result of sin in marriages that are disrupted, in mommies and daddies who beat their children, in uh, tragedy, suffering, sickness, pain, and ultimately, death. You see, we are in the image of God because He is our Creator. But we are also in the image of Adam because we all come from one source. The Bible says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die, in Christ all live. It says in another way in Romans chapter 5, it says sin enter the world by one man's disobedience. And so what does this mean? The reason that people die is because we're all connected to Adam. There's still this, this residual effects of Adam's sin coursing through our veins. And so what does this mean? It means unless there's an interruption in the change of events that we will all face and we are all destined for the same events for the same eternity in Jesus' coming he comes with this glorious interruption in the change of events and the glorious interruption is his resurrection and in that one moment of resurrection he reverses the events that have plagued mankind since the beginning Scriptures records people who have been raised from the dead, but it is only one record of a man who was raised from the dead who never died again. And he is the object of our worship. Paul would say it this way, Him we proclaim to you. Think about it. Lazarus was raised from the dead, wasn't he? Remember that glorious event in the Scripture as the Lord says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth! And he comes. What happened to Lazarus? You can go and you can visit Lazarus' grave, I'm sure. But if you go over to Jesus' grave, that one that died, you'll find an empty tomb. You'll find ascribed to that tomb a plaque on a wall that says, He is not here. He is risen. Only one man 
came through death and came back to life again. So in other words, my point in telling you this is that He stands in the unique position, in the only position, the only one qualified to offer the life, the life that He has to all those who would come to Him by faith. And this is why the Bible speaks in terms of renewal. This is why the Bible goes to great lengths to speak and say that we who have hoped in Christ, we are in every circumstance, in every situation, we are being conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. Because we are not to be transformed into the image of this world, but be transformed and renewed through the conforming processes God takes us. And through the conforming power of the Holy Spirit as the blood of Jesus is applied to our life, takes us and transforms us and molds us into the image of the invisible God. And who is the image of the invisible God? Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Listen to the way 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in verses 7 through 18 speaks of this. Listen, and this is so powerful. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. We share in His death. We will share in His resurrection. That's why we're baptized. And so he says this. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believed and so we also speak knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And then listen to this last part, Paul says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And what are we being renewed to? The image that has been inscribed upon our hearts. The answer to the question that Jesus proposed that he didn't have to answer. The reason they marveled is because whose image is on you? God's image is on you. So he says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
This is the entire reason for Jesus' coming. This is His entire mission, His purpose to renew, to restore all that which was lost. And how did He do this? He did this through His self-giving of Himself. He did this through His self-sacrifice. And He did that. He didn't stop just with sacrifice. He did it by raising Himself back from the dead through resurrection by saving us and by offering us life. When God the Father looks at us, instead of seeing sin, Instead of seeing an image that has been marred, he looks down at us and he sees an image that has been picked up, dusted off, is being polished, is being made to reflect his glory. And so the question tonight. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. Whose image do you bear? In a world full of competing images, there is only one to whom we owe our entire and complete allegiance. Because we understand that there is only one who is qualified to destroy both the body and the soul. He is the one that can do far above and beyond any power that there is. And so then we then have an obligation to show the world Jesus, to bear the image of our redemption, to live our lives no matter the cost in allegiance to our King. And Father, we are grateful for how you love us. We're grateful through the sending of the Son so that, Lord God, we could have life again. You, Lord God, are renewing us into the image of Christ day by day by day. And, Father, we understand that you're in control. And because of your control, we seek you as we live out this responsibility that you've given us in this world full of images to bear the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.